Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Someone once said that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. In many ways, that's been the story, particularly of scientific progress. It seems there is always someone that leads us into the future. Someone whose vision and entrepreneurship and obsessive drive combine to turn the next big idea into the next big thing. This has been true from Franklin to Edison, from Henry Ford to Thomas Watson, from Bill Gates to Steve Jobs, and today Elon Musk may very well be the inheritor of that mantle. Electric cars, commercial space travel, high-speed transportation, and even new forms of education are all part of the vision that Musk sees, and his vision may be on its way to becoming our reality. As we all know, Elon Musk's disruption of the auto industry is full-blown. What we may not fully understand is the way in which Musk, through SpaceX, is disrupting the aerospace industry. How we talk about space exploration, space travel, and simply what a rocket is and does. Capturing this look into the future is my guest, journalist Eric Berger. Eric Berger had a long career at the Houston Chronicle and currently writes for Airs Technica as its senior space editor, covering SpaceX, NASA, and everything beyond. He's been a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and his new book is Liftoff, Elon Musk in the Desperate Early Days That Launched SpaceX. Eric Berger, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Nice to talk to you. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about why SpaceX. What was Musk's vision in creating this company initially? So he started the company back in May of 2002, and it was for a couple of reasons. First of all, he looked at the launch industry around the world, and especially in the United States, and saw that you know that it was really kind of set in stone, pretty ossified. It wasn't advancing. The price of launch was going up. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't going down. And you know, he had come from the banking industry with PayPal and, and Silicon Valley, and, and seen disruption in a number of other industries. And, and the opposite was happening basically in the launch industry. And so he thought there was there was the potential for disruption. But more than that, he felt like it was important for humans to start settling other worlds. Um, and he founded SpaceX expressly with the purpose of, you know, one day building a settlement on the surface of Mars. Um, and he felt like NASA was not going to get there. It was relying on launch companies that were too expensive. Um, and so he set about to, to see if he could make a change or make, make a difference. How much was about Mars and this idea of, of men women settling other worlds, and how much was about just the the business of space, as you talked about, and the disruption that, that went along with that? I think philosophically, it was all about Mars. He talked mm-hmm. about that with the very first people he hired at SpaceX. Um, that was the goal. You know, that was what they were all working toward. And it sounded pretty pretty crazy at the time, uh, less so now, of course, given their successes, but it really was pretty far out there. From a practical standpoint, it did have to be a successful business. Um, you could have all the grand visions in the world, but if you didn't have a rocket and couldn't make money building it and launching it, then, then you're not going anywhere. So he had to build a sustainable business. And the first step t- toward that goal was, was building a small rocket that you could launch affordably. And talk a little bit about whether that was the basis, the idea that he could build this company and make money from it. So there's about a million things you have to do to launch a human mission to Mars. Um, but the first step is you've got to have a transportation system. You've got to have a, a launch vehicle that is low cost, 
can fly off and, and can get a lot of material off the surface of Earth. This isn't like the Apollo missions, right, where you had the big Saturn V rocket and you put everything you needed on that, on that rocket, the lunar lander um, and all the supplies on, on a single launch. For Mars, you need probably tens of launches to get all the material you need to get safely to and from the surface of Mars. So the first step was building a transportation system. And the first step toward building that transportation system was showing that you could bring down the cost of launch. Because back in 2002, it cost so much to get people and payloads into space that, you know, it was be, being an astronaut was a very special thing. Um, you couldn't do very much economically in space because it was so expensive to get to space. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, before we had a transcontinental railroad in the United States, if you wanted to operate a business in California from New York, you know, it took years to get your stuff there and it was super expensive. And then the railroad changed all that. And so he was, the first step is building this transcontinental railroad, I guess, to low earth orbit. And the first step toward doing that was building this small, you know, privately developed rocket that could, was basically a proof of concept. That's what the Falcon 1 was. What was the nexus, if any, between the work that Musk was doing in the automotive industry and with Tesla and SpaceX? So SpaceX came first uh, a couple of years before Tesla, uh, but, but there, there were similar kinds of things. I mean, they were both audacious, right? Because Tesla was seeking to disrupt the automotive industry, which was this large entrenched you know, industry that was in the United States, had just several major players with Ford, GM, Chrysler, um, and then international companies. And it was much the same in, in aerospace, right? You had Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, then you had international competitors in China and, and Europe. And in both cases, these were decades old established contractors that he was trying to disrupt. Um, and they were just in pretty different fields. Now, there was some overlap in the technology and the approach. And certainly he's learned from SpaceX when it comes to Tesla, and he's learned from Tesla when it comes to SpaceX. But the common denominator was Musk, who was you know, basically running both companies at the same time. You talk about his hiring practices and, and, and his effort to recruit the best and the brightest, essentially, at SpaceX. Is the aerospace industry and the recruitment there a kind of zero-sum game in, in hiring the people that he hired? Was he taking them away, not only from other aerospace companies, but even from NASA? Yeah, that's right. So there's a limited amount of, of really talented aerospace engineers. And one of the key things that he did was create an environment where not only would they want to come, but they would want to thrive. Uh, a surprising proportion of the best and brightest you know, young aerospace engineers in the 2020s ended up working at SpaceX. And it's because they felt they could go there and make a difference. Um, and it was less about writing reports and, you know, making proposals and things like that. It was much more about actually building hardware, doing things. Um, and that was the kind of environment Musk created. He wanted his employees, you know, touching the hardware, not sitting in meetings or writing reports. How did the rest of the aerospace industry react to this? How did NASA react to it? So early on, you know, before they, I would say before they got to orbit finally in 2008, most of the rest of the industry looked down their noses at SpaceX because it, it wasn't like Elon Musk was the first person to come along and say that we ought to have a FedEx or UPS of space launch. Um, other entrepreneurs had tried this, you know, literally, you know, a dozen or more had come in and tried to do something similar and all had failed. So it was expected that he would fail. 
Um, as he started to have success, NAXA started taking them more seriously. I mean, awarded them their first real contract in 2006, and then a much more important one at the end of 2008 that really was life-saving money for the company. Um, and then since since about 2008, you know, SpaceX and NASA have been pretty good partners. Um, SpaceX, you know, moves quickly and and can offer NASA you know services at a low cost, um, and NASA provides you know SpaceX contracts and money that it needs to continue its technology development. And to what extent has it been important that there be people in the company, and you talk about many of them, that are kind of buffers between NASA and and various vendors and Musk, because he's kind of an abrasive, difficult personality? Yeah, I certainly would say he's a demanding boss um, and expects a lot of the people who work for him. Um, And early on, this really worked out pretty well because he what he did is he hired four or five vice presidents who were all in their thirties to early forties who had some experience in the industry. And they came in and were sort of willing to be molded by Musk because they understood how the aerospace industry worked and how he was trying to disrupt things. Um, And what they appreciated about him is that he allowed them a lot of freedom in what they did and, you know, allowed them to move much more quickly than they would have had, than they would have at a Boeing Lockheed or, or NASA or anywhere else in the space industry. Um, and then in turn, Musk and those vice presidents hired a bunch of undergraduate students or grad, you know, or, or students in graduate school, um, sort of the best and the brightest from places like MIT, Stanford, uh, you know, USC. Um, and, and they would, they would get these kids like in their young twenties to come work with the vice presidents. And so, you know, they had, they had, no real social lives. They, they weren't generally weren't married or had spouses. You know, they could spend 80 or 90 hours a week working at SpaceX and, and would do so willingly because they were inspired by this goal. And what was the burnout factor there? It's pretty high. <laughs> um, you know, you, and, and for some, some people, the environment just completely didn't work. Right. I mean, you make, a lot of people came to work at, at SpaceX and left within a couple months because, you know, either they had, they had clashed with Musk or they didn't, you know, they just, it was, they thought the work environment was unreasonable. Um, but for those who stayed and those who, you know, made it, they, they recognized that there was a trade to be made, right? If they wanted to do something really significant with their careers, um, this was the place to do it because they weren't going to a large contractor where they might have a, a small role in a big project um, where they might have to wait for government funding for a project to come through. At SpaceX, things moved rapidly. Like, you know, they were literally building things that would be going into space weeks, you know, or excuse me, months or, or you, uh, within a few years. And that really, really is a significant thing that SpaceX brought to the industry. Tell us a little bit about the actual products in terms of, of one, reusable rockets, which was so revolutionary, and also the power of these rockets to get into deeper space. Yeah, so the, the goal initially with the Falcon 1 was to prove that a private company could develop an affordable affordable rocket. Um, and so that meant basically vertical integration. So prior to SpaceX, the most common way rockets were built were someone would would buy their engines from one company, the structures from another, the fuel tanks from another, the payload fairing from another company, and you would integrate all of this together into your rocket, and then you would go launch it. But of course, it was very expensive to do it that way. 
and you were sort of beholden to suppliers on their schedules for when they could deliver your products. And Musk really tried to do much more vertical integration and tried to build as much of the rocket in-house as possible. Um, and so that was one way that he was able to really bring down the cost of launch. So the, the Falcon 1 rocket you know, could lift about 1,000 pounds to low Earth orbit. And there was one comparable system in the United States at the time, the Pegasus rocket. And that sold for 28 or $30 million to launch, and SpaceX was trying to do the Falcon 1 for $6 million. So that gives you an idea of, of the price disruption that they were going for. And then after they, after they got the Falcon 1 working, um, which was a very difficult process, they were then able to take what they'd learned and move from a single-engine rocket, that's the one in Falcon 1, to the Falcon 9 that had nine of those Merlin engines. And that was a much more powerful rocket. And that was the one that was competitive with what the, the Atlas rockets, and the Delta rockets that Boeing and Lockheed were selling to the U.S. government at the time. And that, that was at that point, 2010, 2011, that the rest of the industry really began to take notice of what SpaceX was doing. Because with the Falcon 9 rocket, all of a sudden they could start to compete for Department of Defense launches or for NASA science mission launches or for what we've seen more recently, you know, human launches to the International Space Station. That's going on the Falcon 9 too. Was there concern within NASA, within any any organization, about the fact that, particularly with human launches, but even with, with expensive payloads, that, that essentially the payload or the person is sitting on top of, of a rocket done on the cheap, essentially, compared to what had come before? Yeah, there was always a lot of concern at NASA and in the, quote, you know, establishment aerospace industry about SpaceX, like Musk was seen as someone who could be reckless, right? That, that's, how that, that's how he was portrayed. Um, or, you know, should we really be trusting this guy who tweets dank memes on, on Twitter <laughs> with, our, you know, with our most valuable launches? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you're not just trusting Musk, you're trusting the company he's built. And the Falcon 9 rocket, you know, when they got to the most recent version, the, the Block 5 version, you know, it has the highest success rate of any rocket in the world. Um, it's never failed a mission. Um, and, and that it's done all that while also proving that you can fly the first stage five, six, seven, eight, or even nine times. And so, you know, he, he, he does take risks during development. You know, he's famously said failure is an option at SpaceX. But he's not talking about like launching highly valuable payloads on the Falcon 9 or humans, you know, failure is an option when you're going fast and trying to develop things like the Falcon 1 or the Starship program that they're working on. Um, but yeah, there's always been, there's always been pushback at NASA, some of which is, is driven by, you know, a desire by companies um, to not see NASA gobble up their, you know, their launch contracts. And as you write about in, in Liftoff, some of the early efforts with the Falcon 1 were not very successful at first. There was a, there was a lot of failure that, that almost took the company down at the beginning. Oh, definitely. They, you know, as I said, they were trying to do things, Jeff, that had never really been done before. No private company had ever developed with, with private funding a, a liquid-fueled orbital rocket. And and certainly not with 150 employees, which is what SpaceX was trying to do. You know, if you had done this with a government contract, you would have had, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of employees involved in the development. And it would have cost hundreds of millions, if not, you know, a billion dollars or more to do this. And and they were, you know, they were going fast at the urging, urging of Musk. 
um, doing something that hadn't really been done before. And so, yeah, they had a lot of failures. Uh, the first three launches, in fact, you know, none of those made it to orbit for different reasons, some of which were just mistakes because they were so moving so hurly-burly through the development process. How much was Mars always on the mind of, of people working there, even to this day, in terms of, of being kind of the overarching vision that drives the company? You know, it was the overarching business from the or overarching vision from the beginning, um, without a doubt, at least in Musk, at least in Musk's mind. Um, some of the employees, I think, probably were like, it's ridiculous to talk about Mars when we, when we can't even launch a simple rocket. So I think they were probably more focused on the day-to-day things. But, you know, when I, went, when I talked to them, they would all mention that, that Musk was very good at not just drilling down into the technical details, but also keeping them focused on the bigger picture. And the, and the bigger picture was Mars and the fact that, you know, he was frustrated. And, and this is one reason why... I, I I really like SpaceX and, and believe in what they're doing. You know, he was of the mind that look, it's been 50 years since humans have been back. You know, have been into deep space, and you know, while the space shuttle was great and the International Space Station is a good program, the fact of the matter is we're not really any closer to humans spreading out into the solar system than we were during the Apollo program, and that's not right. Like we should be moving outward. We should be we should be pushing pushing forward and ultimately, you know, have this really ambitious goal of settling Mars. And so he always kept, kept their eyes, you know, at least one eye on the bigger picture that, that what they were working toward is something greater. And I think that's part of the inspiration that, that he can ins, ins, instill in people that, that kept them going, even through the, the most difficult times. And what is his take on this idea of going back to the moon first? I think he's all for it because it's a proving ground for his Starship vehicle. It's an avenue of funding. Um, you know, I'm of the opinion that, that SpaceX probably won't be able to send humans to Mars without significant help from NASA. That may be in, in terms of money. That may be in terms of technical support because there's a lot more things, as I said, beyond the transportation system that are needed. Um, but, you know, he's, he's talked about a moon base being a cool thing. Um, I think he's supportive in the sense that, any plan that NASA has to go to the moon will ultimately, you know, involve contracts being given to SpaceX for various services. What is his view of other, his fellow billionaires that are also in the space business, whether it's Branson or Jeff Bezos or whoever? Yeah. So Branson, I don't think really is on his radar because what Virgin Galactic is trying to do is, um, sense tourists, you know, on a, on a space plane, suborbital space plane. And that, you know, SpaceX is already launching tourists on into orbit, which is in terms of the energy required to get someone to suborbital space versus orbital, it's nearly a hundred times greater to do the orbital flight. So he, he, he's, he's not spent a lot of time thinking about Branson. I think in terms of Jeff Bezos, he does, but I think it's more with amusement than anything else hmm. because you know, he will tell you that, look, you know, SpaceX was founded two years after Blue Origin and they've never launched, you know, anything into orbit. And SpaceX has launched, you know, more than 100 orbital rockets. Uh, so and he says in the book, as a matter of fact, you know, he doesn't think Jeff Bezos is a very good engineer. Uh, we, <laughs> it was a fun <laughs> discussion we had. So, I mean, you know, he I think, he, you know, he's glad that someone else is out there investing in this. And, and frankly, they do share there's there there's they have the same viewpoint from the sense that 
they both believe that the first step is reducing the cost of access to space. And the way that they both decided to address this is through reusable launch vehicles. And so I think he welcomes Bezos in that sense because it's another point of evidence that suggests the approach he's taking is the right one. And it really stands in contrast to the government approach, which is very 1960s in building the space launch system rocket, which is not reusable, which is ultra expensive, launches infrequently. And so you've got both Musk and Bezos out there saying, look, there's a better way and here's how we're doing it. But the reality is the only one actually doing it right now is SpaceX, not Blue Origin. How much of SpaceX is entirely Elon Musk? If he disappeared tomorrow, if he passed away tomorrow, what would happen to the company? Well, the company keeps going. I mean, there's more than 9,000 employees now at SpaceX, um, and they have an excellent president in Gwen Shotwell, um, whom he hired back in August of 2002. Um, so they would keep going, but they would lose some of the vision. And, you know, the thing that I found after you know, spending a couple of years reporting and writing this book is that, you know, Elon is not just someone who showed up with a hundred million dollars in an idea and then turned it over to engineers. He is involved in every step of the process um, in, in terms of marketing, in terms of, of purchase decisions, and in terms of the engineering details of rockets. Like he is legitimately a brilliant engineer um, who, who keeps the company moving forward. But, I think most importantly, what SpaceX might lose if something were to happen to Elon is it has this, you know, this almost unimaginable drive and energy to keep moving forward at an at a accelerating pace of development. I mean, what they're doing with their Starship project in South Texas is really hard to fathom if you look at all the other space projects in history. It's just moving so fast and it's so ambition. Excuse me, it's so ambitious. And, and that's Elon driving it forward. And I think they would lose some, some of that without him there because he is unquestionably the force behind that. And does he want to go into space himself? Yeah, he does. Um, I'm not sure. He, he doesn't want to go to Mars right away, but I could see him, you know, hopping on one of these orbital flights <laughs> in the not too distant future. Although I don't know if like his contract with Tesla or, you know, pre precludes that because obviously, you know, he, he has responsibilities to both companies. Talk about how he juggles those responsibilities. Yeah, he has an insane work schedule. Um, you know, he, he, over the last year or so, he's basically moved down to Boca Chica in South Texas to work on the Starship program. Um, but he also holds plenty of meetings with Tesla, um, the Boring Company, and, and other ventures that he's involved in. And, you know, I think he gets up every morning, um, starts work about nine or ten, and then works until midnight or two or three a.m. I mean, he 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 has a just incredible um, work ethic. I mean, he I think that's all he really knows how to do is he's got these goals, and he spends all of his time trying to think of ways to move them forward as as fast as possible. And talk about his willingness to participate with you in this project in in liftoff. Yeah, so you know I've been reporting on space for more than a decade. And I think he appreciated the fact that that I understood that commercial space was really the driver um, of, of moving NASA and the U.S. aerospace industry forward. Um, and so I approached him in 2018. I said, you know, look, um, or excuse me, 2019, I said, look, I think it's time to tell the story of the Falcon 1. And he said, okay. Um, he said, come in and talk to everyone. So he just, you know, basically he signaled his willingness to talk 
And that gave a green light to everyone at SpaceX and former employees that, you know, that now is a good time to tell this story and that I would, you know, do try to tell it as accurately as possible. Talk a little bit about his relationship, and you write a lot about this, his relationship with his employees because he is so hard driving, because he is such a tough boss that, um, you know, sometimes you're on the good side, sometimes not. Yeah. Um, so the, the Tom Muller, who was the vice president of propulsion, he basically was the architect of the Merlin engine that has powered so much of SpaceX's success. Um, after the first launch in 2006, the engine had failed due to a fuel line issue. And so he told me he was in, you know, deep crap because of that um, with Elon. His relationship was bad. And he, and he said, after that flight, you know, to sort of motivate his teams, Elon hired out a zero G flight. So this is a 727 that goes up and flies parabolic arcs up and down. And, you know, he said, he said everyone who got a good grade after the first launch got to go and everyone who didn't, didn't. And so, you know, here's Muller, who was the very first employee at the company who hired on and arguably it's most important technical employee. And he said, he didn't get, to, he didn't get to go because <laughs> he, he was on, he was on in the doghouse. So, you know, as I say, Elon is extremely good at motivating his people and he motivates them through a mixture of inspiration, um, charisma, uh, fear, ability to, to do things. And, 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 and the fourth thing would be intimidation. Yeah. I mean, it's fear, intimidation, like, you know, you don't want to disappoint Elon because a, you don't want to disappoint him and b bad, bad things, bad things may happen. Does he look over his shoulder in terms of disruption that could impact him and SpaceX from others? You know, I don't think he fears any other commercial space company, you know, I don't, I'm going to answer your question about looking over his shoulder, but I would say for the longest time, for the last two decades, it's really been looking ahead at the titans of the industry. So the, the Lockheed, the Boeings, their joint company, United Launch Alliance, that have sought to sort of keep him down, right? And it, it's been a constant battle to push up against those guys. And, and now I think he's succeeded in that. And so it's time he can look over his shoulder for up-and-comers. The reality is I don't think he sees – too much competition outside of China, which is investing a lot in the space industry, and maybe one company called Rocket Lab um, that also has had some success in commercial space and is competing for some of SpaceX's launch business. And finally, what does he fear most in terms of SpaceX? What is he most worried about? I think what he's most worried about is running out of time. So he, from the beginning, has sought to move fast. That is the defining characteristic, I think, of Elon Musk and SpaceX and Tesla for that matter as well. But it's like, I've got this great audacious goal of, of building a city on Mars. You know, it, if it weren't for Elon Musk, it would take centuries to do this. But he thinks if I can push as hard as possible, it's possible this might get done in my lifetime. But he doesn't know how long he's going to live. You know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know how long there may be an environment where funding for this is available. And so he just tries to go as fast as possible, hoping that he accomplishes goals before the time runs out. Eric Berger, his book is Liftoff, Elon Musk in the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. Eric, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.